Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 74 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one, by coincidence. Not because this is a good podcast, but because there are good podcasts out there, and this happens to be available on the same platforms. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast, and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day, folks. Your boy just got notified that uh, through my work I qualify for the vaccine. So, yeah, I guess I'll be out, I'll be seeing you guys at the movie theater pretty soon. Uh, I don't know. I'm not really sure how this works necessarily. I, I thought I was going to be at the end of a long line for folks who get the vaccine. Uh, I certainly don't, well, at least in California, they're prioritizing uh, people according to age and then people depending on the job that they work at. Um, because the agency I work for has, uh, we see clients who are uh, typically older. Uh, there's some counseling uh, that happens on site as uh, at my agency. We qualify somehow, so um, I'm not sure. I, I guess I'm supposed to be getting an email from the county pretty soon, scheduling an appointment, uh, and apparently you have to jump on that shit real quick because it fills up otherwise. And you know, I don't know. I'm anticipating it'll. I'll, you know, I'll have to get at least two shots, uh, round one and round two. And at that point, I don't fucking know what to do. Uh, does that mean I get to do whatever I want? Can I walk around vindicated? I think if you're like me, I'm I'm sort of hyper attuned to people who are uh, sort of wearing their masks and not. Uh, my girlfriend and I did laundry yesterday. Well, we did a few things that actually pertain to this. We did laundry. <clears throat> and I live, um, well, the laundromat in my neighborhood, uh, they're certainly very lax about enforcing the mask policy. Um, and uh, in fact, I had a weird moment. We were doing laundry yesterday and this this gentleman comes in and he engages me in a conversation and he's standing about... Mm, two feet from my face and he has no mask on uh and he clearly has no problem with it you know i have my mask my girlfriend has two masks on bless her heart and this guy's just talking to me and uh i don't know you know i don't want to be i don't know as 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 much as i'm judging this person i don't want to be the guy who sort of polices people about their mask use um and uh i say that because practically I'm just, I'm not a confrontational person. Uh, I sort of, I'm conflict avoidant, I would say, but I certainly have strong feelings about it. And, um, this actually came up later. <laughs> we were, uh, we went for this hike. We drove out to Benicia, which is, uh, an area north of the Bay area. I guess technically it qualifies as being part of the Bay area, but you have to drive over one of two bridges. These are the, either the Carquinas bridge or, um, or, uh, I guess I don't know the technical name for it, but it, you know, it's, they may even call it the Benicia Bridge or, or something like that. But, um, beautiful area out there. It's sort of surprising as I get older. <laughs> you know, I always thought I, I, I always thought I was like an urban type person. Like when I was growing up, I always saw myself living in New York City at some point. And, uh, you know, if you've ever spent time in New York City, unless it is the place for you, I think it's like Las Vegas and that it's a nice place to visit, but you're also happy to get the fuck out of there. And uh, New York has always been that for me. I've been there maybe like three or four times in my life. And uh, it's just super oppressive. And the people, I mean, even out here in the Bay Area where, you know, it's always neck and neck, I think, between New York and San Francisco in terms of cost of living. 
But even during the recession and maybe even just before that, when people were flying back and forth from coast to coast, I mean, there was a certain demographic of young people in their early 20s who were just basically bouncing back and forth between the coasts. You know, they would spend four years in New York and then they'd come out to the Bay Area and then who knows, they'd probably settle in middle America somewhere in their later years. But I always felt like people I knew in New York were working 10 times as hard. You know, the cost of living was just as high out as it was in San Francisco, but people I know who lived in New York City were working seven days a week and were never home. Um, and just the quality of the housing was also much poorer. So anyway, why the fuck am I talking about that? I think what I'm saying is, as I've gotten older, I've been surprised at the areas that I've been to that I actually start to think, oh shit, I could see myself living here. Um, I had just seen this video on YouTube of some guy. It had to do with pistols. I think he was like, he basically had all this land. He was driving out to a, he had a range on his property. He was driving out there in a, uh, in a golf cart. And I was just taken away by the beauty of the land that he owned. And he had like a little Creek running through it. And I just thought, you know what, as I get older, that's what I want. I want some land. I want some distance between me and other people. Um, I want to become a little thoroughish but I want to do it on my own property. I don't want to build a cabin in the woods. I don't want to be, uh, oh, I don't know. I don't want to be like Thoreau in that sense. I, I want to have some nice property with some distance between me and other people. Um, I guess I used to really value living close to stuff, but um, maybe as things become, maybe as things go online more and more, that's becoming less of a, of an, of a necessity you know, living close to cool things. And also, obviously, part of it is the pandemic, I think. There's a there's a big part of me that, um, you know, I like living in the Bay Area. It's it's actually my favorite part of the country. I mean, even as I'm thinking, you know, the, the, the parts of the country where you could get some land are probably not places you would want to live otherwise, except for the fact that um, land is comparably cheap. You can get property for comparatively cheap to the Bay Area. But otherwise, there's probably not a lot going for it, both uh, uh, maybe primarily culturally. <laughs> maybe part of the need for having that land and in, in, in distance is that you wouldn't really want to engage with the people that you'd be living close to anyway. But um, we went out for this hike in Benicia, um, which I want to say is kind of an affluent area. I don't know whether it is or not, but I, I think... Uh, I think it probably is a little more affluent, but uh, there's a sort of recreational area out there, and you're walking right right along the water. Uh, my girlfriend and I are doing uh, walking as much as we can of uh, the SF Bay Trail, which in theory is a walkable trail that circumnavigates the entire San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, it's not complete. There's plenty of gaps in it, but you know, if you were to walk what is available, you know, you would see nearly all of the Bay Area in its entirety. So that's kind of a task that we have set for ourselves. So now we're on the other side of the Carquinas Bridge. We've done most of the Carquinas Strait. You can Google all this shit. We walked across both bridges, and now we're on the other side. So we're walking in Benicia Recreational Area, for lack of a better word. And, you know, it has one thing that I really dislike when I go to a, a hiking area, which is it's a paved path. And that's great if part of your recreation is just like riding your bike or just wanting to go for a walk, but not really wanting to get out into the woods. But the best part of the hike for me is as you're walking down this paved path, there's these little asides, these little footpaths that have just been worn by people who have, you know, uh, taken the the path less traveled. And it sort of, circ how do I say it? it? It just sort of cuts through this sort of marshy 
area and you can just it has this great views and and that was my favorite part and as i'm walking on this land i'm just sort of looking around thinking i could see myself living in an area like this like if you just had like a little farmhouse or just like a little property on one edge of this field and the rest was just open land uh, that seems pretty fucking cool to me and i would not have always felt that way in my life but that's uh I don't know. There's something about that that seems uh, more and more appealing as I get older. You know, wanting some space, wanting a little more nature, um, wanting a little more seclusion, Not definitely not needing to live on top of each other. Um, and so, yeah, it's just funny from someone who, when I was like in my early teens, I sort of romanticized New York City and saw my, you know, I would have, uh, I would have thought like an urban loft would have been like a dream come true. Now it sounds like a fucking nightmare. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure how we got on that topic. Um, qualifying for the vaccine, uh, hiking. I don't know. It's been an interesting week. Uh, today is uh, Valentine's day. My girlfriend and I are not doing anything, um, which is just fine by me. I'm not sure my girlfriend's entirely sold on the idea, but, uh, I think we compromised because Friday was also Lunar New Year, which is a big holiday in her family. So, uh, we had, you know, she has this great thing, which I love. She's in love with it also, but her mother makes, uh, egg rolls and fried rice all the time. And so every time my girlfriend is near her family, she has an entire suitcase that she packs with frozen egg rolls and fried rice and, uh, basically uh, smuggles that shit back to this side of the, of the country. We freeze it all. And then throughout the year, we just have basically an unlimited supply of egg rolls and fried rice, which is delicious. So as part of Lunar New Year, we thawed some of that shit out, fried up some egg rolls, heated up some fried rice, and uh, and that was our dinner. So, happy Lunar New Year. Also, they do these things, I forget the name for it, but these little red envelopes, I'm sure you've seen them. But uh, a big part of the, the Lunar New Year is you, you know, give away envelopes with money in them. And uh, it doesn't have to be a significant amount. I think as I've spent more time with my girlfriend and I've ingratiated myself into the family, I think they've upped my yearly... Uh, lunar new year allowance so they've been very generous and I'm, I'm very grateful for that but the one thing that is always included at least in her mother's envelopes is a two dollar bill and so i noticed today as i was pinning you know i i'm i don't know i keep the cards and the things that people give me whether it's for my birthday or anniversaries or holidays or whatever you know uh, family cards especially as you get older and people start having families they send you their little family photos i put that stuff up on my fridge so um, but I also have quite the collection of $2 bills that's accumulating. So, um, and they're fucking crisp too. I mean, these things are not in circulation and I think, I think they're readily available. I think if you went to your bank and handed them some denomination and said you wanted it back in $2 bills, I think they'd probably have you. I think they'd probably have you covered. Um, but anyway, I have quite the collection of those. There's a part of me that just wants to start uh, spending them and putting them in circulation just to see the look on people's face. Like, have you ever had a 50-cent coin, and a half-dollar coin that you just sort of drop on someone and they look at you like, what the fuck? Like, what decade, do you, or what decade do you live in that you have this fucking coin? I mean, it's even more rare than the Chicago Way a dollar coin, right? That beautiful gold coin that you see every once in a while. I haven't seen one in a while. But something about that 50-cent cent piece, it just really speaks to me. In fact, I'm looking around my desk now. I used to have one. I used to have a couple, actually, that I kept up here. I would just sort of flick them, and I would do this thing called the French drop. It's like a sleight of hand maneuver. But like, like uh, I don't do it as much as I used to, but I used to just compulsively shuffle cards 
as a way to fidget or keep my hands busy. One of the things I would do is just sort of fuck around with these 50 cent pieces that were up here. I never was able to do the, um, the knuckle roll. You know what I'm talking about? That sort of villainous sort of, uh, imagining your evil plan fidget move where you just sort of roll the coin over your knuckles, you know, the, the, the card shark gambling move where you look like a real badass. Actually, um, John Steinbeck has a short novella called The Pearl. And I remember, I think one of the, actually the only thing I remember from that novel is there's a, there's a villain type character who John Steinbeck describes it perfectly. I think, uh, this, I think it's about a fisherman who finds this pearl and it's fucking cursed. But at one point he goes to get it appraised by this sort of evil moneylender or jeweler or appraiser or whatever. But when you first meet this character, he's described as rolling a coin over his knuckles and Steinbeck describes it perfectly. I mean, and it's the only thing I remember about the novel, really, so you know it makes an impression. But yes, my weekend was mostly uh, Lunar New Year, going for a hike, not doing anything for Valentine's Day. And tomorrow, you know, hopefully you have a three-day weekend as well. Uh, President's Day is tomorrow. I don't know what we do for that anymore. Uh, I think most of the President's news, and I know it's post-President now, but uh, Trump's impeachment, he was... uh, exonerated if that's the right word so found not guilty so i don't know that guy is like uh he's like a villain he's like you know he's like jason in friday the is it friday the 13th i think that is jason Voorhees, right friday the 13th you know he's like that villain at the end of the horror movie that just keeps coming back no matter how many bullets you put into him no matter how many semi trucks you roll over him the dude's fucking bulletproof it's just insane to me that people go to such lengths to protect this guy now that he's out of power. I, re- I said it on the podcast. I really thought his whole shit was going to be like the end of training day where he's big and bad. He's the big bad wolf. He runs this bitch, right? And then all of a sudden, once he's out of power, he just fucking deflates. But for some reason, that dude's fucking bulletproof. I don't know if people are still under the sway of Donald Trump. I don't know if he has a leverage on people. I don't know how the fuck he does it. I will say, though, his presidency and and probably even his post-presidency has shown me how little I actually know about the U.S. government. Like, people are like, he's going to run again. And I was like, oh, can you do that? And as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, even if he runs again, he gets his, let's say he does happen to win, God forbid, he gets a second term. Can he serve two in a row or is that it? Can you just serve two across your lifetime? Just the craziest fucking presidency we've ever fucking had. Craziest. And I remember when people lost their shit over George, uh, um, George Bush Jr. People thought he was the fucking Antichrist. People had no goddamn idea. I mean, again, I feel redundant, but I do remember Hillary Clinton on Howard Stern telling the story about being present for Trump's inauguration. Uh, she was there as the former first lady. She lost the election against Trump, but she was there as the former first lady. You know, most former presidents who are able-bodied, I think, try to show up for each other's inauguration, whether they're of the same party or not. But Bill Clinton was there for Trump's inauguration. And she was standing next to George Bush, uh, George Bush Jr. for Trump's uh, presidential address, right, his first presidential address. Um, and uh, his inaugural speech is maybe the right word for it. But, you know, he just went off on his fucking rocker. I mean, he's completely nonsensical. And apparently right afterwards, George Bush Jr. leans over to Hillary Clinton and says, what the fuck was that shit? 
pretty endearing moment when the Antichrist looks exonerated in face of the fucking, uh, the Muppet. The Muppet that gets to take the crown. I mean, he must have been so fucking relieved when Trump won. He went, oh, thank Christ. Somebody worse than me. Because until now, he held, he held, he was the reigning champion of one of the worst presidents ever. Then Donald Trump showed up and took the heat off him. It's like somebody who's, there's some sort of sexual scandal and then something like Columbine happens where, of course, they're not happy that the tragedy took place, but at least the spotlight gets taken off them. I mean, some people just really suffer because it's a slow news day. What, who is the actor? What's his name? Army Hammer? Was he the guy who had all of his, uh, these sort of Instagram messages about like, uh, I don't even know what you want to call it. He had some fetish about murder, some shit like that. He had all these salacious messages that were shared online about, oh, I want to kill you and then I want to fuck you. And, <laughs> and I, anyway, I, I hate saying these things because someone's going to take them out of context and make it sound like I'm fucking saying these things. But, uh, but yeah, also a horrible thing though. When, if you publish something like that, you have to publish your responses also. Because people do that. They take your story, they leak it to the media, or they, you know, they take your exchange, they leak it to the media, but they del- you delete everything that you said in response. That's not fair. you got to send the whole kit and caboodle, especially if you were egging this person on. You know, they thought they were speaking to a willing participant. You, you can't just delete your retorts or your responses to this person where you're encouraging them to continue to sort of vindicate yourself. That's not right. you got to go all in on that shit. Hmm. Yeah, after hiking, we went and we had uh, Japanese food. Well, I, I don't know. I guess it is Japanese food. We had uh, udon. We went to this Japanese place in um, Oakland for takeout. It's weird. Uh, we're sort of driving, you know, the area where this Japanese restaurant is, it's called Geta. If you're in the Bay Area, you should totally check it out. It's in the Piedmont area. Um, I want to say the Piedmont area of Oakland, but I think Piedmont is actually its own uh, township. <laughs> That's the right word for it. But there's a great Japanese restaurant called Geta. Very tiny. Uh, very tiny. Even when they were open, they had like four or five tables. But since the pandemic, I bet they're actually doing better business than ever. They've always had takeout, but now there's just a fucking queue out the door for it. But we got some udon, took that back home, had some dinner. And uh, it's been a long time coming, but we actually finished The Queen's Gambit last night. We watched, uh, I think there's only seven parts to it, strangely, which was uh, surprising. I thought it was going to be at least eight or ten. But we watched part six on Friday night, and last night last night we watched this, the seventh part. I, you know, it should be right at my alley. Like, I love, I, I, you know, I like chess, obviously. I was never taken with The Queen's Gambit. People lost their minds over that series. They love it. And I always thought it was boring. You know, even on Friday night, we watched episode six, and my girlfriend's like, you, you want to watch one more? And I'm like, no, I really don't. After one episode of the show, I'm fucking saturated. I, I, I never thought it was that great. I was never taken with it. You know, I think the lead is fine. I think the story's fine, I guess. But it just seemed like a whole lot of nothing. Not a lot happens in that show. I 
I will say though, it's sort of like searching for Bobby Fischer and that I think its biggest advantage is that it really shows it's, it's other than searching for Bobby Fischer. And maybe I was thinking about this as we were walking yesterday, there's a movie called the illusion defense. Uh, and I can't, I couldn't even remember the actor's name then, but, uh, very famous actor, a lot of Coen brothers movies, Barton Fink, um, uh, Miller's crossing, uh, uh, oh brother, where art thou? A great actor, but he plays a lead in this movie, The Illusion Defense. But there's not too many serious portrayals of chess. Oh, and I guess there was it Cotway, the, the the queen. Disney made a movie about a young female chess player that um, not very good. I think I watched like twenty or thirty minutes of it and just and didn't finish it. But um, the Queen's Gambit does a good job of of portraying chess seriously and talking about chess seriously and. Uh, and it sounds like a crazy thing, but if you ever watch chess in television or movies, there's they, oftentimes they do so many things wrong. You know, the boards are often not even not even positioned correctly. Um, and I, one thing I said though, I, I really do believe that uh, it's going to take some time for us to see this, maybe a decade or so. But I think an entire generation of female chess players are going to start playing as a consequence of this movie because, like searching for Bobby Fischer, and maybe I've talked about this actually now that I'm thinking about it. But anytime you you portray anything seriously and not just um, in a superficial way, but even something like The Karate Kid, and maybe we would look back on that movie and think there's some problematic stuff on how it's portrayed or the sort of orient of that movie or the craziest part is the lead actor who plays Mr. Miyagi if you ever hear him speak he speaks with no accent whatsoever you know he went into that audition and they were like oh could you sound a little more Japanese and he had to he had to affect this Japanese accent um and the dialogue that's written for him is a little like fortune cookie-esque but um but it does try to show competitive karate in a very serious way the way that it actually exists more or less you know, maybe not the outcomes of the competition and <laughs> don't happen so cinematically. Um, but it was a, it was a, a serious representation of karate and tried to show it, uh, take it seriously. Right. There's an entire generation of people who are inspired by those films. Um, searching for Bobby Fisher was a movie that me and my brother both were enamored with. I've seen it, you know, dozens and dozens of times. And I, you know, my brother played chess pretty regularly growing up. He was part of the chess club. And I guarantee you it was because of searching for Bobby Fischer. We both got into Taekwondo for a little bit. My brother pursued it much longer than I did. But I guarantee you it was because of the Karate Kid. I mean, we both played hockey for a little bit. And I guarantee you it was because of the Mighty Ducks movies. So what I'm trying to say is the Queen's Gambit will, without a doubt, inspire an entire generation of young female chess players to 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 play chess because it not only shows chess seriously but the it, the protagonist is fucking cool i mean this girl kicks ass she's a thousand times smarter than anytime she walks in a room she's usually a thousand times smarter than anybody else in it and she is great the only thing that doesn't make sense to me is i don't you know, I, it, I just, it's not explained to me. I don't know if they address it at the show and I just don't remember, but it doesn't make sense to me how she can be playing against men. Because not only does this rarely happen now, I just can't imagine at the time period where it takes place, like in the 1960s, that this would happen. You know, the, uh, the culmination of the series is she, it's, it's like 1968. It's probably like, uh, I'm trying to think when Fisher Spassky, that uh, chess championship took place. I think that was like 70. 70, maybe 76, between 72 and 76, I don't know. 
But uh, I just can't imagine a world where you'd have the, even the top female chess player playing with men. It just doesn't seem like that was the time period for it. But, um, um, but yes, the girl's a badass, and so there's no, there's no doubt that there's going to be an ent- entire generation of female chess players who cite the Queen's Gambit as their inspiration for getting into chess. Also, the, there's, there is one thing that's unrealistic about it as well, which is, um, you know, they sort of, and it's actually, you know, the, the Fisher Spassky, um, uh, chess championship, uh, world, world chess championship match is probably one of the most famous in history. And so there's a lot of the dynamic in this show, which is kind of borrowing from, from that sort of chess craze, which is, you know, they sort of, um, uh, Beth Harmon is the protagonist of the story. You know, they're painting her as like a sort of early Fisher, which is her success is sparking. She, you know, she's on the cover of, or uh, Time Magazine is wanting to interview her and such. There was not this interest in chess actually before uh, Bobby Fisher, you know, and it was really his match with Boris Spassky um, that started this chess craze, right? Especially in the United States. Uh, and in the same way, there's so many people now, uh, or, and probably before this generation, obviously, uh, who cited that match and Fisher's fame as the reason that they got into chess. Um, but there's something about that final match, and I can't remember her. Um, I can't remember her competitor's name, like Borlov or something like that. Obviously, some Russian chess player, where she sort of goes overseas, and through her winning, there's like this. There's this growing fan base of people in Russia who are celebrating her, both as a female chess player, but also as someone who's winning, ostensibly. And I was like, I don't think Russian nationals or citizens would uh, be celebrating a U.S. person on their soil who was defeating their <laughs> their champion. You know, at one point there's a character, uh, her compatriot, this dude Benny, uh, who, by the way, <laughs> when you watch the show, he's a very handsome guy. But he do- he's the one character in the show who doesn't look like he belongs to the, to the time period. You know, everybody else is in the 1960s, and this dude looks like a modern-day hipster. He's got this kind of wild hair, and he wears like a cowboy hat and a black leather coat, and he's just like a cool fucking dude. But he looks like today. He sticks out like a sore thumb. You say, everyone else is in period dress, and this guy, he looks like, he looks like someone I'd see at the fucking bar up the street. He looks like he's in a band. He looks like he's got a Facebook music page, right? Um, but he says, you know, one of the reasons that the Russians are so good is that they help each other. You know, when the games adjourn... Uh, they get together and they look at each other's games and they sort of talk over them. And that's absolutely true. But there's two points that aren't addressed, which is the Russians cheat. <laughs> Famously, they're known for that. That's not just mudslinging. That's what they have done historically. They would, you know, negotiate draws amongst each other. Um, um, you know, they would throw games or be ordered to throw games by the government to position one player in a position to to go higher. They, this was their, they played as a team. Really, the other part is that there's an entire, you know, the, it was a government-funded sport. You know, chess was a part of the school curriculum. There were entire schools dedicated to chess, which just didn't exist in the United States. So, that's another reason that they were great as well. Also, it's funny. It's like I think my brother, you know, my brother went to Budapest for I think it was a conference. But the thing about chess is you, you know, it's such a ubiquitous sport in other countries, in Hungary, in Russia. Uh, people play in the streets, you know, it's just, it's a national sport. It just exists on a level in that country that it just doesn't exist in the United States and didn't until Bobby Fischer. And even then it disappears. You know, it's always been relegated as this sort of nerd sport or this nerd game rather. I mean, people don't even think of it as a sport. 
I mean, when you look at profiles of chess players like Bobby Fischer or Magnus Carlsen or, you know, anybody who has some prominence and gets some press coverage, is they look at their lifestyle and they're surprised at how much uh, physical fitness is a component of it. I mean, you look at a player like Magnus Carlsen, one, the dude looks like a male model, but he's very athletic. And most of the world's best chess players have been relatively athletic. You know, there's a huge, not only a psychological and emotional, but physical expenditure, which uh, of sitting in one place for at least five and a half hours for classical games, it really takes a toll on the body and you need to be in peak physical condition uh, to do that. You also have to be kind of nuts. <laughs> um, but anyway, yes, there's a huge renaissance in chess right now. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, I don't feel like I really have a horse in the race. I don't feel too invested in it. But, you know, as someone who's had a at least casual interest in the game seriously for probably the last four or five years, it is pretty cool. I feel a little threatened by it because your boy likes to be, uh, you know, I like to be where other people aren't. There is a part of me that's like a, a band that you like. Like it used to be Blink-182 was the um, was the archetype of this. People would say, oh, I like Blink-182. Oh, but I like their early shit before they blew up. I like their early stuff. I feel that way with chess. It's like uh, I'm glad it's getting attention. It's cool that, that more people are playing, but I also uh, want to say like, oh, I, I liked it before Queen's Gambit. And I'm not even fucking good at the game. You understand me? I've been playing, you know, I, <laughs> I play uh, at least half a dozen games a day on chess.com. I play speed games. I play five-minute games or five minutes aside, um, uh, five minutes aside with a five-second increment. So the games can go by pretty quickly. I'd be much better, but wh- I guess what I'm saying is I play at least half a dozen chess games a day, and I am no better today than I was three years ago. You know, in the first two years, I got better and better, and I've just sort of plateaued. If I played slower games, I would increase. If I studied, I would increase. But uh, it's one of those things in my life I just want to enjoy. I'm not going to... I don't want to concern myself with getting great at it. Although I feel like if I was a legitimately great chess player, that I would have huge bragging rights. I think that would be very fulfilling. But yeah, it's actually nice to say that I finished something like The Queen's Gamut because I just, since school starts, I just haven't been watching a lot of content. In fact, I watched a movie the other night. Uh, I watched Looper from like 2012, I think, with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis. I remember, I know I'd seen it before, so I was technically seeing it for the second time, but I can tell you, the first time I watched it, I was in my daily pot smoking days. And there were a couple movies from that time period, which I know I watched, that I don't remember a fucking thing about. If you ever wanted to extol the virtues of pot, it could be that you can watch things over and over again, and it's like seeing it for the first time because you don't remember it. Sometimes you'll have this strong, I don't know, engagement with some kind of content because it's sort of toying with your mind while you're stoned, but you don't, you don't remember it. Like, what was the movie? I think it was called, like, Movie 43 or something like that. And this, this movie was universally panned by critics here. I feel like I have to look it up so that you can look it up for yourself and, uh, and see what I'm talking about. Yes. It was called movie 43. I remember watching this movie and this movie has been lambasted and skewered and absolutely demolished by critics. It's widely considered one of the worst movies ever made. And it is a celebrity clusterfuck of a film. It is an anomaly in the history of filmmaking. They have so many A-list celebrities in this film, it should have been a fucking home run. And yet, 
it's widely considered one of the worst movies ever made. And I remember watching this movie stoned, and I don't remember shit about it. I swear to God, there's one point where Hugh Jackman has like a dick for a nose or something like that. <laughs> it's one of the most bizarre comedies ever. Uh, you know, it's it's supposed to be funny. It's one of the craziest comedies ever made. And I remember watching this movie stoned, and I think there's a meta element. It's basically these sort of uh, sketches, right? These sort of separate stories that... And I think at one point they start to weave together or something. I don't fucking know. I was high. But I remember watching this film and thinking it was the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. I remember watching it and thinking, this movie is fucking meta comedy fucking genius. And I remember in my pot haze, I posted about this on Facebook. And I think I posted something to that, something just like that. Like, movie 43 is meta-comedy genius. And I, two things happened. One, I mistitled the movie. I don't know what I called it. But somebody, like, left a comment. like, do you mean movie whatever, whatever? And I was like, and I think I responded to their comment saying, I'm never posting anything to Facebook ever again. And, of course, I have since then. But uh, I pretty much, that was, that was the end of an era for me in terms of Facebook posting. Especially not sober. But um, I haven't gone back to watch it, but there's a part of me that wants to. So I can really see how well calibrated my judgment is when I was under the influence of, uh, of marijuana. I'm so glad I dodged that bullet. Uh, uh, weed being decriminalized or even legalized in the state of California. I mean, it sort of reminds me of when I smoked cigarettes. I mean, I had a long storied history of being a, a heavy smoker after this point. But I remember being a pack-a-day smoker, my freshman year of high school. I remember when I was about to turn 18, I was just begging myself to find it within me to, to quit cigarettes because, you know, I was already having some difficulty getting cigarettes. If I was, and I was still smoking a shit ton, right? If I ever turned 18 and could buy these things legally, it would be the fucking end of me. Sure enough, I did. And it was for a long time. It's actually weird to look back on that time period and remember how fucking tormented I was about the fact that I was a smoker. I mean, even drinking. You know, I, I don't know, maybe it's a gift. I'm imagining most people listening have something in their life that they had to work to quit. Maybe it was... They wanted to, they had to change their diet. They wanted to lose weight. They wanted to start exercising. They wanted to quit smoking, or they wanted to quit drinking, or they wanted to quit caffeine. Um, but it's so funny when you finally break through something, or you get past a certain chapter of your life, and you look back, and and I just think that weighed so heavy on me. I mean, I really carried around. I really carried that burden around like a fucking albatross. It didn't slow my smoking down any. But that's, I, I lived with that every day. I, I felt awful. I mean, I, I smoked so much, I felt sick. You know, every morning I would wake up and just like have a cough. I mean, I listen to like podcasts now or I watch like YouTube videos and I can hear it in people's voice. You know, it's not overt. I mean, you can hear obviously people who talk with a smoker's voice, but I mean, you can hear it in people's breathing. They have a sort of strained in-breath and it's not, you know, it's not highlighted as much, but I, I don't know. I feel like I can pick up on it a lot of times. I go, oh, that person's a smoker. And I think the, the same thing happens with marijuana. People pretend like it's a wonder drug or that it has no ill effects or it's all natural, man. It's from the ground. That shit will fuck you up. If you're smoking every day, that shit will fuck you up. 
And I think this is totally anecdotal. I don't know what to point to, but I think someone said that there's actually pretty considerable health risks if you ingest marijuana. Like maybe long term, the the you know the the, um, the health impact of smoking is actually less dangerous than eating it. Something about eating marijuana um, is bad for your health as well. Something maybe stomach cancer or something. I don't know. You look into it. I'll just set you down the path. You figure it out for yourself. But what was I saying? <laughs> I was talking about Looper. Jesus Christ. Yeah, uh, creepy ass fucking movie. It's one of those movies that. It's kind of a cool premise, or it, I don't know, it should have been better than what it was, and it actually starts off pretty pretty interesting. I think I was saying this about Saw, too. I watched Saw. Um, is that from the same? No, Saw is much earlier than that. Um, but the sort of frame story, or the central story of Saw, without all the bullshit that's around it, is actually pretty engaging. Um, the beginning of Looper is kind of the same way. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's a sci-fi film, so you feel Blade Runner. And actually, you feel Minority Report, too. There's something about this that seems to draw heavily on something about Minority Report, this sort of Philip K. Dick slash Blade Runner type sci-fi movie um, that sort of aesthetically mixes, like, modern day. Like, here's the thing. Sci-fi movies often get this wrong. Like, when you look at 2001 Space Odyssey, it's hard to fault that movie um, in terms of its influence or its impact. But the thing that a lot of sci-fi movies get wrong that I think modern sci-fi movies are smarter about, which is anytime you look at a time period in the future, they treat it as one time period, as if nothing came before. Like you, you look at 2001 and everything is different. Whereas that's not really what life is like. Even in the present, you know, every, every present is both the present and people trying to be futuristic, but also the past. You know, when you look at future movies and they're all hovercrafts and, um, you know, everybody's eating food out of a fucking uh, straw or something, or everybody's wearing the same jumpsuit, that would never happen in the future. There would be people who are less affluent, have less resources, who use old shit, and then there's people in the future who have all the nice stuff. So it, it would be an amalgamation of the past and the present. That's kind of what Looper does. I think Children of Men is another movie that does that really well also. You know, there are some scenes that are very futuristic, but then there are people who live a more antiquated, rustic, analog lifestyle. And that's that's what any future would be like. It would be a mixture of the two. But Looper kind of starts off with this kind of interesting premise, but that doesn't really... I don't know. Even as you're watching the movie, it starts to unravel a little bit. The more you think about the central premise, which is like, you know, in the future time travel exists and there are it's it's illegal so basically it's something that criminals do but in the future when a criminal wants to kill someone they send that person back through time to be killed by people in the past so that they never exist or that they delete in the future um that how does that work that doesn't really seem to make sense to me you know, there's this one, there's this one, they're called loopers, the people who are these assassins. But at one point, they, they, they have this concept of closing their own loop, where at some point, their future self is sent back to be killed. But it's like, that doesn't make sense to me. Because if I kill my future self, I'll own, I, I, I still live. It should really be my future self. Well, it, someone should come back to kill my past self. <laughs> I shouldn't kill my future self. If I kill my future self and lo and behold, I still exist, I'll just end up there eventually, right? So anyway, maybe I'm not wording this very clearly, but the point is, is as you watch Looper, the more you think about it, the more you think, I don't know that this premise actually makes sense, but the point is, 
is it sort of starts off kind of engaging. It has Paul Dano in it, which is kind of a problem for me because every time I see him, I see him doing so much of what I think ruined the movie There Will Be Blood. You know, I've said There Will Be Blood is probably one of my favorite movies. I've seen it tons of times. Of course, Daniel Day-Lewis is brilliant, brilliant in it. Paul Thomas Anderson does a great job with it. The production design is great. Interestingly, I, I, I watched uh, No Country for Old Men again recently, and there's kind of a funny story where There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men both came out about the same time, and they were both celebrated by critics. Um, they both have kind of a similar aesthetic, but a lot of that is because they were shot in the same location. And there's actually a moment in uh, in There Will Be Blood, there's the oil rig fire. And apparently that fire, there was so much smoke in the air because these movies were shooting in proximity of each other. Shooting that scene actually shut down production for No Country for Old Men. They were kind of shooting in the same landscape, but there's this smoke billowing up from this oil rig fire that they're shooting for uh, There Will Be Blood. It actually affected the production of No Country for Old Men. But anyway, Paul Dano basically ruins every scene or nearly ruins every scene of There Will Be Blood that he's in. And part of that is because he was never supposed to play that role. Um, It was only, you know, there was another actor hired to play the, um, is it Eli? I don't know. I forget the character's name. But apparently that person was not working out. So they made a last minute decision to recast the role. They bring Paul Dano in. Paul Dano was already playing his brother who sort of sells out the family. And they just sort of wrote in the fact, well, they're twins. That's how we'll sort of solve this. How can it be the same actor? Well, they're just twins. Okay. Well, Paul Dano is no match for Daniel Day-Lewis. And you can kind of see it too. I think Daniel Day-Lewis knows (laughs) that this guy can't really keep up for him. And he tries to incorporate it into the story. And I've heard some apologists for for Paul Dano's acting say, well, that's what the movie's about. He's weaker than Daniel Day-Lewis. And I go, no, 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 no. No, that's not what's happening. Daniel Day-Lewis can't keep up and Daniel Day-Lewis is doing, uh, Paul Dano can't keep up. Daniel Day-Lewis is doing what he, what he can to sort of make this work within the scene, but um, you just see Paul Dano getting outacted. And God bless the guy. I mean, he tries so hard, but um, even in Looper, there's just something about Paul Dano that fucking bothers me. The best role that he's done, I think, is uh, Prisoners, a Dennis, uh, Dennis Villeneuve film, which, although not perfect, is, is pretty fucking great, too. And I think the reason Paul Dano is so great in it is because he barely has any lines. And um, that's a great movie that you should see. But why am I talking about this? Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm just trying to say that Looper is not that great. (laughs) I think that's the only point that I'm getting at. I mean, I can can feel myself trying to stretch this material out because the truth is I just recorded one of these a couple days ago. So it's not like I've had a whole week of content. So I'm just trying to get us back on schedule. So the last episode was good enough, and this this may just be the same thing. Excuse me. Yeah, it's actually, I guess a lot of the content I've been ingesting has only been kind of lukewarm or tepid. I'm reading um, uh, Notes from a Dead House by Dostoevsky. And uh, the last episode, I was probably extolling the virtues of the double and uh, probably the gambler to some extent, too, but really the double. Um, Just probably my favorite Dostoevsky story. And so I'm trying to sort of sew things up before I read Brothers Karamazov. And it's actually surprising. When I actually look at Dostoevsky's published works, I realize, oh, he's actually written a lot that is not ever really talked about. That's, you know, not really considered part of the essential canon I mean, I feel like once I finish Notes from a Dead House, the only thing I would have left to read is Brothers, Brothers Karamazov, and I've read everything that, quote, matters. 
by Dostoevsky. But when you really look into it, there's actually a lot that is not usually anthologized. I mean, there's other novels that just don't really get talked about, which is devastating. Because as I'm reading Notes from a Dead House, I'm reading it, and the whole reason I'm bringing this up is, it's not very engaging. And again, I'm not sure if it's the translation, because here I am reading another Pavir and Volokonsky translation, and I'm thinking, this is not really grabbing me. And is it the translation? Is it that, you know, I did read one one criticism that says that the translation of the, the Pavir and Volokonsky translations are just not that engaging. And I thought, maybe... Maybe when I do sit down to read Brothers Karamazov, I need to go with one of the, the classics, like Constance Garnett or something like that. But I still need to ask our MVP, our former MVP, Matt Evans, about which translation he read. But um, um, it's not that engaging. And it's one of those books that I'm reading right now. And it's like, it doesn't happen, happen too often, but it's like, as I'm reading it, I'm no, I know that I'm not engaged. You know, from page to fa- pa- from page to page, I feel my mind wandering. My eyes are just kind of going over the text, but I'm not really digesting what's going on. And it's like every half page or so, I sort of check in with myself and I go, "Oh, I don't, I don't really know, <laughs> I don't really know what's happening. I really haven't been absorbing what's happening." And so sometimes at that point, you you go back and reread, or you don't, which is what I'm doing in the case of this book. I'm just kind of pushing forward. When I am able to engage, it's pretty engaging. I don't know if that's me or if it's, uh, you know, whatever's happening in the story that's sort of keeping my attention. But like last night after uh, The Queen's Gambit or whatnot, I was sort of laying in bed and I I wasn't able to sleep. And it was like, uh, it was like midnight. My girlfriend's already fast asleep. She can sleep through anything. And I have to sort of uh, tap her and wake her up and say, hey, you know what? I can't sleep. Is it okay if I turn the light on? And she's like, oh, I don't want to. But then she like, she snores again. She can, she can sleep through anything. And she does this crazy thing that, as, especially as someone who's tossing and turning most nights, it probably takes me like a half an hour to get to sleep most nights. She can be saying, she can be speaking one moment, and then within a second will be fast asleep. Or she'll be sinking down into sleep. She'll just start twitching. You know that sleep twitch that your partner will do sometimes? I mean, we feel ourselves do it as well. You ever, like, you ever been falling asleep and all of a sudden your leg will kick out? And you realize, oh, I was falling asleep? She does that. She'll, she'll say one word. She could say goodnight and then twitch. And you're like, holy shit, how do you do it? So she did that. I was up reading for like an hour and 15 minutes. And, uh, and I actually found myself pretty engaged with the book. But otherwise, I feel myself just walking through it. And actually, now that I think about it, that's exactly what I was doing with The Adolescent. I mean, I was following the plot a little more closely, but it is kind of disappointing when you find yourself reading a book that you're just kind of reading to get through it. You're just kind of reading to finish it. But again, who knows? Maybe it's the translation. I mean, it is kind of weird when you think about classic novels where when you really think about it, you haven't really read them. You know, you've just kind of read an interpretation of it. I mean, I think about that a lot as someone who's really into Chinese philosophy. If you really think about it, I've never really read it. As someone who can't speak or read the language, I, I just have to read someone else's interpretation of it and trust that it's accurate.
and, and, and when you think about it, then kind of a catch me if you can kind of way where you can just kind of fake it till you make it. Couldn't you technically come up with your own translation of Brothers Karamazov? I mean, if you had the Russian and you had uh, an English translation, couldn't you kind of fake your own translation of it? You know, and just kind of come up with synonyms for all the words, just kind of rephrase things, change the word order, you know, use your own adjectives or something like that. Couldn't you kind of fake your own translation, especially for a novel where there is multiple translations? You know, like people learning um, Greek or something, they'll set the task of whether or not it's ever published. They want to translate the, the Iliad or the Odyssey, you know, or maybe the Aeneid in the case of Latin. But if you have, if there are dozens of translations available, couldn't you kind of come up with your own? Like Ezra Pound, the poet, he came out with his own translation of uh, Confucius's Analects. This motherfucker doesn't speak Chinese. He can't read Chinese. He can't read Mandarin. And it's actually not Mandarin because it's actually ancient Chinese. It's sort of like uh, you can speak Spanish, but it doesn't mean you can translate Don Quixote. In some ways, it's a very different language. But like Ezra Pound came out with a translation of the Analects. And this dude's not a sinologist. It's like, I feel like with a dozen translations of the Tao Te Ching, I could come out with my own translation. And there, th- those do exist. There are interpretive translations. I actually think, who's the author? Not Burton Watson. Um, that dude is a sinologist. There's somebody who came out with their own translation of Shuang Tzu, who is not a sinologist. I think it's Thomas Cleary. Hmm, I don't know. I don't want to besmirch anybody. I'm just saying it has been done and it can be done. You know, I probably wouldn't start with Brothers Karamazov, but I bet I bet someone could come out with their own translation of like a Dostoevsky short story and probably fool some people. Oh. Anyway, your boy has a lot of math homework to do today. It's kind of been uh, kind of been the bane of my existence. You know, I said the thing that really frustrate, frustrates me is it doesn't matter how much time goes by, or maybe uh, so so little time goes by. I've taken a class, and all of a sudden I have a new semester where the beginning of it is all review, and I just can't retain any of the information. You know, here I am having to do these trigonometric functions, and it's like I, you just had a whole semester on trigonometry, and I can't remember any of it. I mean, I even think that with books that I read. I mean, speaking of Chinese classics, I mean, I, I probably read like six or seven translations of the Analects, and yet when I read it, it's kind of like reading it for the first time. I'm actually, and maybe, uh, I think it's more clear with chess, because chess is a, I don't know, it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's sort of a, I don't want to say it's, is it qualitative? It's sort of a qualitative skill, Right. Maybe it's more clearly demonstrable, but it's like, when I think about how much I've read of Chinese philosophy and about Chinese philosophy, I mean, I've read about half a dozen translations of the Tao Te Ching. I've read about half a dozen translations of the Analects. I've read, you know, at least three translations of Mencius and two of Sun Tzu and, uh, you know, it just goes on and on, Neo-Confucianism, all this stuff. And I've read so much about these authors. And yet... If I ever had to articulate what I actually know about them, I feel like I would be a bit of a dunsky. Hmm. 
I don't know what that is. Maybe there's something to be said about formal education where, you know, maybe there's something structured, something about retention of information and, and doing it in a structured setting. Maybe engaging with these texts in a certain way that you do in school where you're just, you're just more apt to um, retain the information. I also think a part of it is just getting older. One, maybe I smoked way too much pot in my life, and so the, my actual brain has been impacted. But I just feel like when I was younger, I could read a novel once and just retain information. Actually, my brother reminded me recently, like when we were younger, we would see movies, and, we would, and, I, and, and he and I would just be able to recite scenes verbatim after seeing it. You know, I was very good at impressions when I was younger. And maybe that's, maybe it's nothing to do with me. Maybe, that, maybe that's just the young mind in general. But I feel like as an adult, I can read things and I have to reread them. And it's almost like I can read them for the first time. Or maybe once I'm introduced to it again, I sort of have the recall. It triggers something in my brain. It's in there somewhere, but I do have to revisit it. I feel like when I was younger, I could read something once and I would just be able to draw on it. You know, I, when I was younger, I used to be more active about writing my thoughts about things down. You know, I would read very actively. I, I had this whole notebook where no matter what I was reading, I would just sort of write quotes down about it that I liked. I think there was something to that, that tactile thing of like writing things down, not just seeing it with your eyes and processing through your brain, but then actually the physical part of writing it down. I would have these sort of summary takeaways from novels or um even nonfiction stuff I was reading that I would just carry with me for, through my whole life. Or I would write reviews, you know, on like Goodreads or something. And it's like that would calcify my takeaway of that novel or my impression of that novel. Whereas like now I feel like I digest more content than ever. I feel, in some ways I feel like I know myself better than I ever have. I, in some ways I feel smarter than I ever have. But if I ever had to demonstrate that to other people, I don't feel like I could. And, and I guess in some ways I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but even in my own therapy, I've said, you know, actually, as I get older, I feel dumber. I feel more stupid as I get older. I feel like I both know myself more. I come closer to knowing who I am and what I want. And yet I also feel further away. There's some familiarity or something about knowing myself that I've always wanted as I get older that just seems more and more elusive as I get older. And maybe that's because that's a fantasy. You know, it's almost like I think the self is fully formed. You know, I've, I've, and I think a lot of people talk about it this way. I mean, there was a period in my, you know, about the time I turned 30, where I did have this palpable shift in how I experienced myself. Like when you're younger, if you're like most people, I think there's just something you sit with some, some tumultuousness. There's some tempest that you carry around inside yourself that about the time you turn 30, and I'm sure it's biological, I'm sure part of it's circumstantial, but I think a lot of it probably is biological. There's some tempest in you that quiets down and you come to know yourself, you know, and it's, I think it's why adults in your life tell you don't get married in your twenties. Hell, the fact that you pick a career and like major in something, uh, and get a degree in something and maybe even finish grad school if you're on the normal trajectory and sort of are in your career by the time you're 30, most people, I think, have to look up and say, holy shit, I don't want to do any of this. But they're sort of pot committed at that point. But the point is that even around that time, I had this return to my early interests. 
You know, and I thought, wow, when I was a kid, I felt like I really knew myself. And then I tried to make it in the world or I, you know, even if you're like me who thought I was kind of an individual and kind of impervious to peer pressure, you sort of look back on most of your life and say, oh, I was just finding myself. You know, I was trying things on. I was trying to be that person. And I also think, especially for me growing up, I mean, one thing that's become more and more clear, and it's something I have to reconcile with myself, is when I was younger, especially, I was a people pleaser. I mean, I still feel the impact of that mechanism, which is, you know, I've, I've talked about it on the podcast. It's very easy for me to, uh, you know, should is a very strong word for me. It's a very strong motivator for me. No matter where I am in my life, whether it's school, whether it's therapy, or even my relationship, uh, romantic or with family or whatever, I sort of am good at, at determining what I think other people want for me. And just setting that as the benchmark for success and living up to that. And I think especially when I was younger, that was, uh, not that I experienced it this way, but that was a big part of my mentality. You know, I was very good at endearing myself to teachers. I was very good at endearing myself to directors, Um, even my peers. You know, I really sought praise. And I I think I would just kind of become and live up to whatever expectations people wanted for me. I mean, the example I always use, um, and I know it's come up a couple times on the podcast, but when I was younger, you know, I went to this performing arts uh, camp and uh, I remember we were, it was my birthday. My dad was up and he had like gotten a little cake for me and my cabin mates in town or something. And as we're cutting it up, there's just not enough pieces for everybody. And uh, at one point there's, you know, a kid in my cabin who doesn't have a piece. And I just say, oh, you can have my piece. And, uh, you know, my, my cabin counselor looks at me and he just says, how did you get to be so good? And even in that moment, I knew I wasn't doing it because I necessarily wanted to as much as it was the right thing to do. And by the right thing, I don't just mean the cosmic, morally right thing to do. I mean, this is the thing that a good person does. But even by good, again, I'm not talking about the objectively good thing to do. I'm talking about this is the type of thing that you do and you get celebrated for And that's kind of a hard thing to tease out because I think on some level, all of the nice things we do are things we do because they're rewarding. Because on some level, they make us feel good. You know, that's part of the biological mechanism, you know, of like altruism. Not that I'm a fucking expert on altruism. I don't know shit about it really. But, you know, there are studies done. Like, what is the root of altruism? I mean, in a way, when you think about it, why do certain things smell good and certain things smell bad? There are very few things that smell good that are bad for you. There are a lot of things that smell bad that are bad for you. And it's not that they actually smell objectively bad. It's because your biology is wired in such a way that you experience it as bad because it's poisonous or it's like your fecal matter. You know why your farts and your shit smell bad or you experience them as smelling bad is because they're bad for you. Because they're rotten. Because there are things in them that will make you sick. You're biologically conditioned to be repulsed by that smell. Dude, to dung beetles... Those are fucking roses because there's shit in that that's good for them. Uh, so I think morality is the same way. These things feel good because although they are good for other people, and that's at least culturally, that's how we talk about them. We should do them for other people. We do them because they make us feel good. So anyway, I don't want to get too uh, complicated here. The point I was trying to make is trying to be what other people want me to be is a big motivating factor for me. And... It's been challenging as an adult to sort of, as I I feel like on some level I do get to know myself better, it means I disappoint other people in my life. 
And that's hard. Because on an intellectual level, I understand, well, that's natural. When you do things that make you happy, that ultimately disappoints other people. And people are critical and people voice those criticisms, but that's something that you just have to sort of, if, if you're going to be happy, if you're going to prioritize yourself at some point, you know, if you're ultimately going to be vested in, not like in a selfish way, but if you're ever going to be happy, on some level, you have to do what you need to do for yourself. And it doesn't mean you don't compromise. And it doesn't mean that you don't do nice things for other people. It doesn't mean that you, I mean, Trump would be the example of somebody who does things <laughs> for themselves at all cost. I'm talking about more on just a fun, you know, the sort of big life decision stuff. You know, what do you let motivate you? What do you pursue? The things that have to make you happy. And that's going to make other people pissed off. I mean, I think there are people in my life who knew me when I was younger who would look at who I am or my life now or my values or the things I pursue or the things I'm interested in. And they would not be happy. But I also don't know that they ever really knew me, you know? I think you have to, I mean, people talk about this in terms of art. You know you're doing something interesting when you have critics. <laughs> now, um, I have a thousand qualifications for that, but I think there's something to that. You know, if you're doing something that pleases everybody, it's probably not that interesting on some level. You know, at some point you have to choose a side. You have to take a stand. You have to take a stance. And the criticism is going to come from somewhere. And everybody who's lobbing criticism thinks they're the good guy. But you have to decide who you are and where you stand in the struggle. I mean, that's a Bob Marley lyric, but you can take that one to the fucking bank. I mean, I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. You know, when I used to run regularly, and by the way, your boy's still being active. I'm still doing my exercises, which feels great. But when I used to run regularly, and again, that was probably a thing I was doing because I thought it's what I should do. Um... But there's a car in my neighborhood. I still see it. It's this sort of black, S, not even an SUV. It's just sort of like a, I don't know, like a, like a RAV4 or some shit. I don't know what it is. This is a small, like, small vehicle. But it has this sort of magnet, magnetic sign on it, the kind of thing you would get at like a Kinko's or something if you had a, a maid service. You don't want to actually paint your car. You don't, you don't want to actually paint the logo of your business on your car, but you want to have the magnetic sticker that you stick on there that you can take on and off. Someone has one on their black vehicle, old ass, this car has been beat to shit. This thing has been on there for two decades at least. But the sign says, nobody else can tell you what work you're here to do. And I used to run by and see that thing and just laugh, 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 laugh like some hippie bullshit. That's some hippie Berkeley bullshit that people put on their cars, just a bunch of fucking nonsense. I might as well say, like, save the whales or... The one I always laughed at is, you know, the sort of progressive left liberals, uh, which are ubiquitous out here, and God bless them. But people who put like their their Bernie Sanders signs on their lawn, it's like this is the Bay Area. You're preaching to the fucking choir here. To me, it was just some ineffectual thing that somebody posted that was very breathy and ponderous. As I've gotten older, I think, holy shit, if they didn't have that shit figured out, man. God damn it, if that ain't the fucking truth. Nobody else can tell you what work you're here to do. You have to decide for yourself. And when you do, you're going to disappoint a lot of people. But that's part of stepping into your own. That's part of the process. You got to take a stand. You got to decide who you are and where you stand in the struggle and what work you're here to do. You have to decide for yourself. And, by the way, live with the consequences. 
So anyway, that sounded like a definitive place to end. I don't know where the fuck that came from or how we got there. But if but that sounded like a period to, to a fucking sentence or to a point. So let's go ahead and end it there. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Go ahead and, and just sign up on Apple Podcasts. I think at some point we've been talking about, uh, I don't know, going all in on one platform. And I'm sure I'll be saying the same shit next week. But the, but go ahead and sign up on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. You know, type up why you like the podcast and why you think others would also. That can that can change some minds. You know, we have a fair amount of shitty reviews, but I, I don't read that shit anymore. So even if you leave even if you leave a nice review, I'm just never going to read it. I've sworn to myself to to just ignore that shit from now on. But um, uh, but go ahead and and convince other people. Take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. If you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Uh, Until then, we will see you next week. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now.